All right, moving up the continent now, I said we're going to be looking at Cameroon. It has been a country of conflict for years. Tentative ceasefire talks were announced last year between the Cameroonian government and secessionist fighters demanding independence for the country's two Anglophone regions. But reports of abuse continue into 2021. Bienvenue to Swatten to Reporters in this edition, Cameroon's English separatist. They declared independence unilaterally a thousand days ago, but that independence now seems as far away as ever. Hostilities continue in Cameroon's English South, which they refer to as Ambazonia. Images of slaughter pepper the internet. Catholic bishops in the UK have even intervened, making a call for an end to what they're calling human rights abuses in Cameroon. And President Paul Beer's military it's been called into question. The separatist government in exile even accusing Beer's forces of genocide. Western Cameroon is the scene of a four-year bloody conflict between armed Anglophone groups and the army. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Human Rights. We are glad to have your company in our audio journey through Africa. My name is Nangam Sokwinana, and I'm delighted that you have tuned in again. In our previous episodes, we met experts from West, East and Southern Africa who shed light on the human rights situation on the ground and shared their stories. If you missed those episodes, do take a listen. Our next series of episodes will introduce you to the very people who actively stand up for human rights in Africa, despite strong headwinds, and the work they do as human rights defenders. We will meet human rights defenders from different countries, listen to their stories, and learn what motivated them to become human rights defenders in the first place. Now, before we reveal which part of Africa we are going to today, we have invited an expert who will first explain the concept of human rights defenders in more detail. Dr. Michaela Lesowski is a senior advisor for human rights, politics and rule of law at the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Michaela Lesowski. It's great to have you with us today. Let's get started. Michaela, you are currently working on a publication on the topic of human rights defenders fighting for democracy and freedom. Please explain to us what qualities define a person as a human rights defender. Well, human rights defenders promote the rights of others. Individually or in a team, they strive for the protection of human rights. They are highly motivated. They raise their voice for the realization of human rights and they stand up for justice. What defines defenders is primarily their human rights actions. However, often they do not receive the proper acceptance and adequate recognition in society. Defending human rights is quite often dangerous because they receive threats. Often they are intended to intimidate and silence them. Most of the time, human rights defenders fight an uphill battle to convince both the citizens on the one side, as well as the governments on the other side, that human rights are crucial, always crucial in a developing and sustainable society. Thank you very much for elaborating and defining those qualities for us. Now, I'd like to also find out, 
I'm aware that you've taken part in a recent workshop organized by FNF Africa that brought together human rights actors from across Africa. One very important message to me is that the UN General Assembly has passed a special UN declaration dedicated to the work of human rights defenders more than 20 years ago. That declaration respects human rights defenders as vulnerable groups. Could you please elaborate on this declaration and also its implications? So on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1998, that UN declaration you have mentioned, Nangamsu, was adopted by the UN General Assembly. It's a special declaration dedicated on human rights defenders and their rights. The declaration itself applies existing standards of international law to the protection of human rights defenders. The declaration itself recognizes, on the other side, the right to promote and to protect universally recognized human rights. And the declaration says that each state has a responsibility and duty to implement human rights and especially to protect human rights defenders under national law. The legal concept of human rights defenders is not focused on a specific professional group only. So such as you imagine, Nangamso, journalists, bloggers or lawyers, but the legal concept is rather applied more broadly. Human rights defenders work in different fields in order to combat violence, address human rights abuses, and improve the human rights situation on the ground. Thank you very much, Michaela. It's clear that the declaration is very important. I think it's a very important point for human rights defenders across the globe. Do you have any advice that you would like to give to our listeners and human rights defenders that may be tuned in? Well, human rights, as I've said, human rights defenders raise their voice for the realization of human rights and they stand up for justice. They raise their voice for their own human rights, but also for yours, Nangamsu, and for mine, even so I do live far away in Germany. I demand, therefore, greater recognition for their work and for their contribution to peace and sustainable development. Human rights defenders shape the immediate and long-term future of societies. We need them and we need their work everywhere worldwide. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing these highly interesting insights with us, Dr. Michaela Lusowski. It's been amazing engaging with you this day. With this clear definition of human rights defenders in mind, I am already looking forward to what our two guests are going to share with us today. Elvis and Nora are from Cameroon and are committed to human rights. Cameroon is a country in West Central Africa. It is bordered by Nigeria to the West and North, Chad to the Northeast, the Central African Republic to the East and Equatorial Guinea, Gabon and the Republic of Congo to the South. The official languages of Cameroon are French and English. In Cameroon, security forces and armed groups keep violating human rights. 
The government is cracking down on peaceful dissenters and on critics. And Amnesty International reports that torture and other ill treatment of people in detention is occurring. After the controversial election in 2018, when President Paul Beer, aged 86, won his seventh term, freedom of expression, association and assembly continued to be curtailed. According to the Human Rights Watch report, the government denied entry to the country to a Human Rights Watch researcher. There have been numerous attacks on the civil population by the terrorist group Boko Haram in the past. Thousands of people died in clashes between the terrorist militia and armed forces. In addition, the so-called Anglophone crisis has prevailed since 2016. Cameroon achieved independence in the 1960s. There are still formally two official languages, two education systems and two legal systems, even though the French-speaking and the English-speaking territories were officially merged by the government all those years ago. This has created a number of discrepancies and injustices in the country, where Francophones have received preferential treatment by the government. In 2016, English-speaking minorities protested their unfair treatment. The military was deployed against the protesters. People were killed and imprisoned. Thousands of refugees left the country. This is an ongoing human rights crisis. Today we would like to paint a picture of the current situation on the ground. To this end, we are very happy to welcome Nora Shuye and Elvis Weppengong. Nora holds a bachelor degree in sociology and anthropology from the University of Boya, Cameroon. She has been working with the Organization for Gender, Civic Engagement and Youth Development, OXEOD, since 2017 as an administrative assistant, field project supervisor, and now as project officer. It has been an incredible journey working with women and youths in communities. Nora has organized and coordinated training and workshops to sensitize women and girls to the realities of gender-based violence and abuse, menstrual hygiene, leadership and human rights, as well as training women on entrepreneurship. So far, she has reached out to more than 1,000 women and girls in Limbe, Cameroon. Elvis holds a Master of Science in International Development Management and a Prince II Certified Professional Degree from the University of Westminster, London. He also holds a Bachelor of Science in Management from the University of Boya, Cameroon. Elvis has more than 16 years of work experience in development management, occupying the position of the Executive Director of the Organization for Gender, Civic Engagement and Youth Development, a national non-governmental organization located in Cameroon since July 2005. The organization receives an average of 13 interns and volunteers each year and has received 10 international volunteers since 2010, who he trains and mentors. 
His crowning achievement includes a successful application on behalf of Oxayod to obtain a special consultative status with the Economic and Social Department of the UN. He initiated the expansion of Oxayod human rights activities to eastern and northern regions of Cameroon, where early marriages, female genital mutilation, trafficking of persons, especially children, and other forms of gender-based violence are common. Elvis and Nora, we are very glad that you have found the time to talk to us. We already mentioned the so-called Anglophone crisis in Cameroon. Now, I'd like to find out from both of you, and if you could please answer first, Elvis, do you belong to the Francophone or Anglophone citizens of Cameroon? And could you briefly recap what has happened since late 2016? How did this conflict become the root of instability that plagued the country up to today? Thank you very much. Um, well, I would say that I am a bilingual version of Cameroon because uh, my father is from the Francophone region of Cameroon, one of the Francophone regions of Cameroon, and my mom from the well, one of the Anglophone regions of Cameroon. But I grew up in the English-speaking uh, part of Cameroon, so. Most of my attributes and manner of doing things reflect the cultures of the Anglophone part of Cameroon. Um, then uh, talking about uh, the roots of uh, these Anglophone problems, it is uh, traced back, I would say it's been traced back to the colonial area. After the First World War, we know that Cameroon, then the German Cameroon, uh, was shared between uh, France and Britain. You know, the British territory comprised of the southern Cameroons and the northern Cameroons. And in the, uh, the referendum held on the 1st of February, 1961, northern Cameroon chose Nigeria, while the southern uh, Cameroon chose the Republic of Cameroon. Fast forwarding to the independence, to the Fumban uh, Constitutional Conference that took place on July 17th, uh, 1961 which uh, was organized to create a constitution for a new federation state of uh, British Cameroon and the Republic of Cameroon. The, the Federal Republic of Cameroon came up uh, into fusion in the uh, 1st of October, 1961, but it was converted to a, a unitary system in uh, 1972. Uh, so I, I'm giving that uh, background, that history, because that is where this whole thing started, this whole problem, because the, when the, these two, uh, the Southern Cameroons and the Republic of Cameroon sat together, their decision was to create a Federal Republic of Cameroon. But along the line, this was changed, uh, you know, without uh, really consulting with the Southern Cameroons. And that has not been working. So the English-speaking regions have always felt oppressed and marginalized until, you know, they couldn't take it anymore. Reasons why the, the, the conflict escalated in 2016, starting with the teachers, you know, who came out, you know, not uh, enjoying the way the educational system has been put together. Uh, and later on, the lawyers also came, you know, uh, up and they started revolting. So the root of this crisis lies in the badly organized unification that was based on centralization and assimilation. 
and in the economic and uh, administrative marginalization of these uh, Southern Cameroonians. So the marginalization can be seen in institutions that have been created by the state, not reflecting the bilingual nature of the country. The failure to keep the promises made in uh, at the Fumban conference is amongst the grievances of the Anglophone militants. So those, that is like the base, and that is what has really built to what we are seeing today, a full-grown crisis where we have uh, now um, the Amazonian forces labeled as the, the terrorists at the moment, and they have been up and they have not been able to give up, and there is insecurity in both regions at the moment. Thank you very much, Alvis, for sharing that brief description with us. If you could please come in, Nora, and give us an indication. How does the 2016 crisis affect you and your families and also your work? Uh, thank you for that. Um, so far, it has really been challenging because uh, 2016, that's when I left the university. I graduated and getting a job at that time it was very challenging because with the up and down, with the lockdowns, the, 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 everything was just stagnant. So getting a job at that time was very difficult. And so we also had people, uh, companies shutting down. So it, it, it played a lot on myself and my family as well as every other person in Cameroon. And so that's how I got to get to, to Oxayot. And there I said, I can't just be at home doing nothing. So instead of just waiting for when the crisis is going to stop and then start getting, trying to see how I can find a job, I got now into Oxayot and started with a volunteer to volunteer. And later, that's how I grew to where I am now. So it has really been challenging for myself and for my family, with my mom, uh, my mom is a single mother and we are two of us. I have a younger brother. And so I intended going in for a master's program, but I could not go because my younger brother got to the university, uh, finished his high school and had to get to university. And struggling on her own, she could not afford to send both of us to school. So I had to withdraw for him to get into his own, uh, get into the university, at least have a degree, while I struggle to see how I can get some funds and support her so I can enroll into a master's program. So it has really been challenging for us and up to this moment because things are not the same. Since my mom is a teacher, sometimes with the shutdown, there are no schools. So with, that, with the fact that schools cannot uh, function normally, they don't get the pay that they, they, they are supposed to have the same. So sometimes their months will go on with no salary. And so it affects even the well-being at home and us getting to get some of the things that we actually want to have. Thank you very much for sharing your personal relay with us. In your opinion, what are the potential solutions to the conflict? And what would you say should the government do? Is there a principal need for reform? I would say that um, there should be another dialogue because we had the, the national dialogue that took uh, place 2019. Uh, many people don't see that dialogue as 
as a, see it as a way that the, the government wanted to use to, to solve the problem. They just saw it as some kind of camouflage to, to, to just entice the people so the crisis could, could stop. But at this point, nothing concrete has come out yet. Those people give, give their opinions and they are trying to work on certain solutions, but nothing concrete is really coming out of it. So I think that another dialogue should be held so that they involve everybody. If some people were not included in the first dialogue, they should be included in this next dialogue so that everybody can speak and they shouldn't come with, with one mind like, I should come and say this and my the other parties should just accept it. But they should come with an open mind where there will, there will be room for collaboration. They should be able to think and come with valid uh, solutions, solutions that will be permanent and that will be beneficiary to everybody. In that way, I think that gradually we are going to come to an end of the crisis. And also I think that the government should be able to make some changes in some policies that the Anglophones are feeling left out or they are feeling suppressed. So some, they should make some changes in these policies. In that way, I think that is going to be like a, a breakthrough so that the, everybody can start coming together and then we can all get to the peace that we are so looking forward to. Thank you very much, Nora. I sincerely also hope that the reach of our conversation today does extend to some of the government service in Cameroon. Elvis, would you come in as a bilingual speaker of both English and French? How can a country in which the population does not speak a mutual language prevent such conflicts in the future? Well, uh, thank you. I would uh, start by just saying that, uh, you know, Cameroon have over 250 ethnic groups and there are uh, 24 major tribal languages uh, groups used in the country alongside French and English, you already mentioned, as the official language. The multiplicity of this ethnic conflict that is uh, uh, both armed and unarmed, the crisis of the tribalistic orientation of the state, tensions between communities and the emergency of ethno-regional socio-movements are all indicatives of this uh, present crisis that we are facing right now. Fostering cultural tolerance through capacity building and cultural exchange visits uh, will give uh, Cameroonians, especially because um, I would say that uh, when we in the country, you, when they see an anglophone, somebody the English-speaking part speaking, you know, uh, in any forum out in the uh, francophone region, they classify them. Oh, voilà les the 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 Bamenda. They they call them like people from the northwest. So it's a way of insult, you know. But what they they do that they generalize all the time, you know. But they don't actually know. Uh, the culture of these people, at times if they get to come and they get to see the similarities. So if this forum is uh, something like this, is being created, and I think it's in one of the projects we, we are working on recently, you know, because we, we think that if we have this, it would help to foster peaceful coexistence. This can be, you know, it can be accomplished 
you know, right now the government has created the bilingualism commission, which uh, it's there to foster this. It's not just uh, English and French, but to make sure that there is peaceful coexistence between the different uh, tribes, the different languages, the different cultures. So if they can work together with the civil society to make sure that there is this understanding, I think it's a potential way forward to preventing future conflicts. Thank you very much, Alvis. You both work for the Organization for Gender, Civic Engagement and Youth Development. You carry out projects in the area of human rights and your target groups are women, children and youth. Moreover, you do what you do because you want to improve the quality of living of vulnerable children, youths and women. Nora, if we could please start with you. Could you tell us more about what your job looks like? What is your story and why do you work for a human rights organization? How I got to to this level, uh, my job is very interesting. I must say, it's really interesting to me. I just enjoy doing it. Um, how I I started my journey when I was much younger. I think when I was in secondary school, uh, I realized that I had friends who shared a lot of of their problems with me a lot of intimate things concerning their families, which they will not discuss with any other person. So I don't know. I just kind of, when they share those stories with me, I just keep them. I never discuss them with any other person. I just kept it that way. Until when I got to the university, then I understood that when you get to do counseling, that, um, being able to be reserved about people's stories, you don't talk about it to other people. It's it's something that it's it's good. People get to to want to share their their their, their problems with you because they know that they won't hear it from other people. So gradually, I was so interested in becoming a social worker and helping other people give them solutions to their problems. And so gradually, when I when I got into the university, by the time I was leaving, I was looking at the bigger picture. How can I help not just few people around me? How can I help other people? And I started looking at um, one of my concerns was the issue of rape, because rape is something that happens here, and many people don't talk about it. It's only when you get closer to somebody who has gone through that experience. And maybe the person has observed that, oh, with this person, I can discuss this, I can discuss that. And the person will not talk about it. And so that's when they have that level of, they find that, oh, this person, there's a level of level of confidentiality. And so they come close to you and talk about it. Then I was just so worried about seeing, when I hear cases of young children being raped, I was like, no, no, no. How does this happen? And people are quiet. And those who are able to talk about it, they don't get the closure that they need. And so most of the times when you talk to them, they'll be like, they don't see the need to even talk to somebody in an organization working there because they won't get that closure. Or when they report to a police station, they won't get the closure because if they, 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 
the perpetrator comes from a family that is is rich, and so they'll tend to close it up. So it got me worried. I was like, how do I help these people get the closure that they so need? That's how I got into to Oxayon. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Nora. And Elvis, if we may please hear from you, what motivated you to become a human rights defender and to stand up for the rights of others and those of yourself? Really, for me, growing up from a very low-income family, you know, uh, got me thinking from my childhood. You know, seeing other kids, uh, their parents are able to buy them bicycle toys. And, you know, my own parents can, they can't afford that for, for me or my siblings. And, you know, we had the, we had the desire for uh, things like items like that, but we couldn't get them. So I, I started thinking, now, what, you know, what can be done so that uh, every parent, they are able to uh, have the, the means to purchase this for their children? So I, in, from that early age, I started looking at inequality, you know, and I, I started wishing that, you know, things would change. And as I grew up, I came to realize uh, that uh, equal opportunity can be a reality with the right capacity building and an em- environment having the right opportunities to enable change. While in the university, I concluded that to be part of uh, change, I wish to see, uh, I need to devise a strategy to empower communities to maximize opportunities around them. So uh, defending the rights of the oppressed was at the foundation and center of my goals. I have been serving humanity since after my undergraduate uh, program in 2004, um, together with a group of proactive uh, and like-minded childhood, uh, you know, people who had the same like, like-minded childhood as mine, you know, that's how we founded the Organization for Gender, Civic Engagement, and Youth Development. And we have been focusing our activities on women and youth, uh, you know, and uh, since the inception, you know, we have been carrying out activities just like uh, Nora has already uh, said, we we look at these two groups because we know they are the two most vulnerable groups in our society. Not that the men are not vulnerable, but the youths, you know, when we are looking at everything happening around, even today with the crisis and everything, it impacts more on the children, the youth and the women, you know. So we, these are the groups that we, we thought we, we should work with. And um, uh, we, we do a lot of projects on uh, gender-based violence, focusing on, especially on rape, we have had cases in court. So the thing is, that is really part of my motivation. You, I'm able to have these cases and, and I don't care and I don't, I'm not afraid of the, the perpetrators. They might come with all the money they have, but you know, they always have this thing on the, the poorer people. Those are the, their victims, the children from the poorer families. So we tend to stand and you know, put the resources forward and see that we can get the justice that they deserve. So that is, you know, being being able to put a smile on people's faces, you know, being able to give them a solution, a way forward. At times, it's just counseling in the office. At times, we, we put our resources. 
At times, we just sit and we give them a shoulder. You know, as a human rights defender, those are the things that we, we need to do. The small things, those are the things that really matter. So just being there for other people, you know, that is the motivation for doing this. Knowing that you can uplift somebody by just giving a shoulder, by just helping out with some um, resources. So that is the motivation. And that's what has gotten me right to where we, I am right now. Thank you to both you, Elvis and Nora. Now, we have already noted at the beginning of this episode that it is often difficult for human rights defenders to find acceptance in society. You address topics that are uncomfortable and that sometimes may criticize the people and their habits. Being a human rights defender is often an uphill battle to convince both the citizens as well as the governments that human rights are crucial for a developing and sustainable society. Elvis, please could you come back and tell us what does your family and what do your friends say about the work that you do? Have you ever been in a situation where you were strongly criticized or even threatened? What my family and friends, they do think about my work. Uh, I would say that uh, my family and friends, they are really uh, supportive at what I do. Um, back in the past, you know, they, they all thought I would get myself into trouble by doing that and have unnecessary eyes on me. But I tend to always, uh, I, I really have built my skills in advocacy and lobbying. So I've reduced a lot of, you know, those uh, uh, situations where I would, my life would really be in so much danger, though you can always uh, be 100% sure. But when it comes to, um, at times, some of the cases where that we do work with, especially on uh, sexual violence on, or on trafficking, it, that's where it becomes it becomes challenging with uh, the perpetrators because they do feel you might get calls, you have been threatened, you know, that if you keep on with this case, they are going to come up after you personally. So there's that threat that comes at times from the, the perpetrators of, of violence or when, uh, and you know, these people, they have the means to pay the magistrate and cases are being thrown out of court and you have to take them back to court and people start, saying that they'll use other means to follow you up. So you, you are in this place where you are in a tight corner. But the thing is, you know you are doing what is right. I know I'm doing what is right. So I always keep to it and I always push forward. I encourage the, the, the family of the, of the victims that we need to push on and get the, 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 the justice that you know, the children, the, they should have. Then it's, and that is it. It, it goes with... Um, um, even at times doing economic empowerment programs where uh, you are trying to get women empowered in their homes and their husbands are uncomfortable for that to happen because they want to be the ones giving to their wives. And it's difficult telling them that if your wife has to start making enough income as well, it will be good for the family. So there are those situations where they come at you. So it's, it's mostly not from family and friends, but from uh, the, the communities that we work with at times. They, it's, uh, they are in a, they don't allow us access. It been situations where we have been followed from a house with cutlass because we went there to provide help, but the family they, they we had to run for our lives. So it, that is how it has been life threatening at times. But we just keep on. 
I want to thank both of you for sharing your stories with us. And I want to appreciate you for also sharing with us the journey of how you initiated Oxayad, the Organization for Gender, Civic Engagement and Youth Development. Thank you so much for sharing what has been an enlightening engagement for me and I do also hope for the listeners that have tuned in. As the two final questions before we part, I'd like to find out from you, Nora, just as a final parting shot, why do you think it is important for the average citizen to care about human rights? I think that the average citizen should care about human rights because um, it's always said that ignorance is not an excuse in the law. So sometimes people don't understand that they have this right. They don't even know about it. And so they don't care. And that's why when people find themselves in certain situations, they can't get out of it because they, they don't know anything about their rights. So I think that um, it's important for an average citizen to have some knowledge on human rights so that when they get into certain situations, they can know what to say and say it confidently. So nobody overrides them. And in that way, people don't trample on others because they feel that they are on top, they can do anything and get with it. Because once somebody knows that you do not know your rights, the person can trample on you at any time. But the moment you understand your rights, people don't, don't treat you in a way because they know that if they are going against that right, you know what to do to defend yourself. And lastly, Elvis, in your opinion, how can we achieve a fair, peaceful and free Africa? I, I think the first point I have, uh, we can do that through collaboration. Now I understand that we already have a lot of collaboration happening, but um, I think that the, the kind of collaboration that really gets us, you know, to come together and look at how we can make, do and use of our, our resources that we have. Because uh, what I have noticed over the years is um, we have these resources in, in Africa, but most often we choose to send them out of, uh, to European countries or to the Western world for them to they do the processing and they now send finished product and it's more expensive when we have all it takes to, to uh, process this product. So, uh, uh, this, uh, so that is one of the things is collaboration. And Africa needs to define a system that will sustain this partnership. It has to be what works for them. Yeah, I, I have had meetings with a lot of people who said, oh, the way it looks like democracy isn't working. I'm not saying that it's bad. The, the, the host, it isn't working. What can work for us that will still make sure that human rights is being respected, make sure that the opportunities are equal, economic growth and every other thing. So we should look for a system that you know, can sustain the partnership that we want to build, the collaboration that we build. So then the, the last thing is, though Afri African countries have independence, most are still being remotely controlled by the ex-colonial uh, uh, masters. I'll take an example, uh, you know, French still interferes uh, in affairs of their ex-colonies. Uh, that is one thing I may assume, 
you know, France accepted only uh, an independence on paper for his colonies, but signed binding cooperation accord detailing the nature of their relations with France, in particular ties to France and colonial currency, France educational system, military and commercial preferences. Africans have the capacity to flourish better if the invisible hands on their leaders are removed for them to be accountable to their people. Thank you, Elvis, and thank you, Nora, for sharing insights, for sharing knowledge, and for painting the picture on the ground in Cameroon for us today. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been another jam-packed episode and has certainly shed some light on human rights issues in Cameroon, as well as the importance of human rights defenders. There are some of the things that really stood out to me in today's episode. Personally, these are some of my take-homes. Personal motivation and a value for human rights is a really important aspect when it comes to being a human rights defender. And as Nora said, there is no excuse for ignorance. How would you like to become a human rights defender in your own context, in your own country. I really enjoyed what Alvis mentioned about collaboration being a key factor in a free and fair Africa. And as Dr. Michaela Lozowski said, human rights defenders represent the rights of others. And with human rights violations occurring daily, we can see that in order for us to move forward as a continent, human rights defenders need to be respected and protected. This was the Cameroon episode of Let's Talk Human Rights, the FNF Africa podcast exploring human rights issues. If you enjoyed the podcast, listen to our previous episodes. The Friedrich Naumann Foundation Sub-Sahara Africa is an independent German organization that is committed to promoting liberal ideals and politics in Africa, such as human rights, the rule of law, democracy, innovation, digitalization, and free trade. By conducting campaigns, media events, seminars, workshops, study tours, cultural happenings, and training courses, the Foundation promotes human rights, including freedom of expression, freedom of the press, children's rights, and LGBTQI++ rights, and engages against violence against women and capital punishment. If you are interested in our activities, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Simply check for Freedom Foundation Africa.